So we're launching into this series, This Is Us, and I want to talk and start off the series today by talking about love. And I think it will fit perfectly with where we are at in the context of the last couple of days, even in Charlottesville. But this is not, I just want you to know this, this is not an endorsement one way or another for the TV show, This Is Us, okay, just so you don't get that in your mind, okay, because people think, oh, well, he's, yeah, so he, they believe everything about the show. No, we don't. Don't get your undies in a bunch, all right, and don't send us an email. I, I mean it, okay? So, and if you're going to send me an email, put your name on it. Oh, snap. Because people send us stuff and don't put their name. Be a man or be a woman. Okay, I don't say that arrogantly. I'm just saying, you know what? Own it if it's yours. All right, but don't send me an email on this one, okay? This is really a series about talking about how we are connected by the common thread of love. We, we are really connected there, and we need to know that. We, we go back to the commonality. And if we're all honest, all of us have someone in our lives, you know, someone we know, someone close to us that's challenging for us to love. And uh, maybe there's someone in your life right now who is always negative or super critical. You know, they're ego-driven, they're self-absorbed, and it seems like, you know, the world just revolves around them. You're not allowed to point in this service either, okay? I don't want you to do that. You may, maybe somebody doesn't listen well, they don't empathize, they're not very compassionate, and maybe they're pushy with their ideas, values, beliefs, political opinions, or, or you've been hurt, they've hurt you, or whatever it may be. Um, somebody that maybe just gets under your skin and you don't even know why. But just a moment of mass confession today. If there's ever been someone, ever been someone in your life who is hard for you to love, would you just raise your hand for just a moment? Just, just mass confession. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for, for your honesty. I, there's a lot of hands if you looked around and saw those. A almost all of us have had someone in our lives who is difficult to love. Now, if you didn't raise your hand, maybe that person is you. All right. So, gotcha. Called you out today. But I don't know. Here's the thing. Um, people have always hungered for love, haven't they? Really. It is part of the human condition. God put that inside of us. And when Jesus came, he brought with him a profound understanding of love, a profound ability to give love that was quite unique and that the world had really never known before. And what happened is it launched a movement. It launched an incredible movement. And I want to be clear on this, the, the, the kind of love that God is. I want us to think about this. As we look in this story, the disciple of Jesus named John, if you have your Bibles, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, these words not, were not only addressed to them, but we would think today and know this, that it is being addressed to us as well, as we are a New Testament church. 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Here it says, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from whom? God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
Have you ever noticed in life, I'm sure you have, how many times you've heard people say that they love something? They'll love an object, they love people because they are lovable or lovely or worthy of love. And you know, they love mountains. You've heard people say that. Love the skyline, love the valley. You have people, I love chocolate. We love Facebook, Apple, Google, and the Redskins, some of you do. We love people of great beauty, great intelligence. We love great leaders, gifted athletes, right? There's a kind of love that seeks value in what is love, and that's not a bad thing, and we all understand that, but there's another kind of love that is much harder to explain. And I'm going to tell you a story about a great pastor and a great author. It's one of my favorite stories. You look at this. It's by John Orberg, and in one of his books, it involves Pandy. He writes about Pandy. He said this, by the time I met her, Pandy had lost most of her hair in one of her arms and one of her eyes. She was my sister. His sister's name is Barbie, so you understand that favorite doll. Barbie loved that doll. Pandy had a little plastic head and mostly ragged body. When Barbie ate, Pandy would eat next to her. When Barbie slept, Pandy would sleep next to her. When Barbie would take a bath, if she could get away with it, Pandy would be in the bathtub with her. She loved Pandy with a love that was a little too strong for Pandy's own good. The deal was, if you loved Barbie, you loved her rag doll. It was a package deal. It went together. You couldn't have one without the other. He said, this made our family do kind of crazy things. We went on a vacation one time, and he said, I grew up in Rockford, Illinois, and went to Canada with my family on a vacation. We were driving back home. We were almost all the way back, and we realized Pandy had not come back with us. Pandy had stayed behind in Canada. No other option was even considered. He said, my father, no kidding, turned the car around. We drove all the way back to Canada. My parents rushed into the hotel, and Pandy was wrapped up in bed sheets, about to get washed to death. <clears throat> the measure of our love for her was so that we drove all the way back to a distant country to save that doll. We were a devoted family. We were not a bright family in particular, but a devoted family. My sister loved that doll. Years pass, as they do. And Barbie grew up as little girls will. And eventually, she outgrew the doll, Pandy. She traded her in for a boyfriend named Andy, <laughs> who ironically was even less attractive than the doll, Pandy. <laughs> really, the only logical thing to do at this point was just trash the doll, just get rid of it. But my mom could not bring herself to do it. She took that ragged little doll, she wrapped it up in tissue like it was worth a million dollars. She put her really carefully in a box, stored her really carefully in the attic, and kept her treasured for many, many years. Now, when I was growing up, he said, I had all kinds of toys and playthings. My mom didn't save any one of those things, but she saved my sister Barbie's doll. Do you know why? He said, it's because my mother loved my bratty little sister more than she loved me. No, actually. It's because Barbie loved that doll with a love that made the doll precious to anybody who loves. Love Barbie, love her rag doll. It's just a package deal. He says, every family knows what I'm talking about. There's some old blanket, ratty pillow, teddy bear, little cloth monkey he said, my sister eventually grew up enough and got married, well, not to Andy, but to a much more attractive guy named Craig, a, a wonderful guy. 
they had two boys, and they had a little girl named Courtney. And Barbie decided Courtney ought to get the doll Pandy. She got the box out of the attic. Pandy had never been out that much, not like now. Now she was more rag than a doll. My sister who lives in Southern California took Pandy to a doll hospital. They actually have places in Southern California. Pandy got Botox and liposuction (laughs) and whatever else they do until she looked as beautiful on the outside as she always been in the eyes of my sister who loved that ragged, ratty little doll so much. There is a love that seeks value in what is loved. There is a love that looks for what is beautiful, lovely, expensive, has status, brilliance, is successful, is dazzling. There is love that seeks value in what is loved. But there is a love that creates value. There is a love that creates value in what is loved. Ragged little dolls, cheap little cloth monkeys, crummy old pillows, and maybe sometimes you and me. There is a love that looks for what's beautiful, lovely, expensive, has status and brilliance. There's a wonderful writer, Christian writer, G.K. Chesterton. This is something that speaks really deep to us and deep to our souls. He writes, there is the great lesson of beauty in the beast that a thing must be loved before it's lovable. Our, our first date, you've probably heard me say this before, maybe I had Kristen tell you, first date that Kristen and I went on, took her out to dinner, and as we're sitting there eating dinner, I was so nervous, I could hardly eat a thing just being across the table from her. And I'm, we're sitting there eating, I could hardly eat. She is just going to town. We were college students, <laughs> and she was hungry. And I, what I had left over here was a piece of cornbread, and I just couldn't eat anymore. And she said, can I have that piece of cornbread too? <laughs> and said, yeah, here, take it. I can't eat it anyways. I was so nervous. And then I took her to the movie that night, Beauty and the Beast. And then when I asked her for her hand, I read her the story, Beauty and the Beast in that park in Minneapolis. And she's an amazing gift to me, that's for sure. I love her so much. That the thing must be loved before it's lovable. That's our burden. That's our wonder. That's our problem. I must be loved before I'm lovable. This is the revolution Jesus brought into the world that, that began this strange community called the church. It's why, we he, why we're here today. It's what you and I ache for down deep. It's what we really want. It's what we really long for. And so John, who wrote these words, understood what they were about. And some of you might know this. John was a disciple of Jesus and in the Gospel of John, he was kind of, he had this nickname, the disciple who Jesus loved. Do you remember that? That's in John chapter 13. This is the disciple that Jesus loved, but a, it took a particular form in John. A writer, N.T. Wright, talks about this. Most likely, John was the youngest of the disciples. He lived way longer than any of them. He lived to be a really old man when he was writing these letters. And in that day, it was kind of different than the day we live in. In that day, to be young was to lack status. In that day, age carried status with it. Those were the good days. Part of what John would have understood is if he's the youngest disciple, he is the least strategic disciple. He is the least mature disciple. He is the least valued. I get it. We understand that, that I even understand in my own life, I'm ragged, I'm pandy, but here's my identity. I'm, John is saying this, 
I'm the one Jesus loved. I don't know why. I can't explain it. I sure didn't earn it. Then he writes, as the early church did, about this other kind of love. It's a love of another kind. It was so striking that they had to find a word for it. And if you've been around the church any length of time, you've heard this word, agape. Can you say that word with me? Agape. Yeah, that's the word. It's a fascinating word. It's been around for centuries, even before the New Testament church. It was very obscure, though. It was rarely used in the Greek language up until this point. It was even a word that was pretty general and quite bland. It just meant to prefer one thing instead of another. But in the New Testament, they seized the word agape and they filled it with the idea of love of another kind, a love that doesn't seek what's going to be valued but creates value. The church did this. I want you to understand. You got to understand, the church did this. This Jesus took ragged people and made them his disciples. The church became this community of really ragged people. And John wants us to understand this, so he begins and he says in here, Beloved, let us love one another. You look at this word beloved. I know in the church world it feels kind of like a, a cliched, pious word. If you've ever, you know, heard the old wedding ceremony, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. It sounds like, you know, those things that preachers say. That little word beloved changed the world. That was the idea. That was the idea that he is speaking out. It was the answer actually to a question that has vexed the human race for a very long time. What's a human being worth? Of course, in our day, we, we look at this. It's a real question. If you ask for different objects, what's a car worth? Of course, it depends on the car. You can go to the Kelly Blue Book, and based on the make, the model, and the condition, you can find out the worth of a car. If you want to know what the value of a house is, it depends on the size of the house, the age of the house, where the house is located amongst the many things. And there are many places online you can go and find out, you know, the worth of a house. Zillow amongst the many places. You can plug in the address and find out what your house is worth, what are the, what are the worth of the other houses that are around you. But there is a house you can plug in the address and it won't give you a worth. It's the house is called Mount Vernon. And nobody here could afford to buy it because its worth is not based on its condition. Its base is not worth on, it, worth, uh, or on its size. It's based on who it belongs to. Who used to live in that house was a guy named George Washington. It's priceless because it's his. Because when you honor that home, you honor the one who made his home there. It is a special kind of worth. See, that's not based on beauty or any other type of value. There's a great philosopher, a Christian thinker at Yale, Nick Wolderstorff, and he calls this bestowed worth. This is a worth that is not earned, that comes as a gift. What's a human being worth? You could say in ancient centuries, people did it depends on the, they would maybe say, well, it depends on the person. What Wolderstorff writes, he says, it's quite fascinating. It turns out to be essentially impossible to find a secular foundation, a foundation outside of God in which you can base the dignity, the priceless value of a human being. See, if you try to do it in a secular way, if you try to say, 
well, listen, human beings are worthy because they're rational or they're worth this. They have a unique capacity for reason. Then the problem is if somebody has a diminished capacity for reason, then they have a diminished worth. Well, we don't even say that. Now, some, including folks who are secular, wants to believe deeply in the human worth. It's just many times hard to find a reason in which to ground the value of the human being except to say there is a God, there is a supremely good God, and he loves human beings, that God says, love me, love me, love my rag dolls. You have bestowed worth. It is not based on how you look, what you own, what you drive. This last week, we went to our denominational worldwide meetings in Southern California, and it's called the General Council of the Symbols of God. And we, as we were there, and those of you that have been in Southern California, and you drive, and you think, wow, man, this is amazing. The homes on the coast, it's beautiful. The Hollywood Hills, everybody was beautiful. They looked beautiful. Their hair is beautiful. Their skin is beautiful. Their bodies were beautiful. Their dogs were even beautiful. <laughs> kind of crazy. Felt like, you know, oh, I've never been that beautiful. That dog looks better than I've ever looked. <laughs> Here's the deal. It doesn't matter. When it comes to the worth of a human being, it does not. Your worth does not depend on how pretty you are, how young you are, how smart you are, how well-connected you are, what car you drive, what house you live in, or what your bankroll looks like. How many of you with me? Say Amen. Your worth rests on this. You're a child of the king. And that is enough. Can I hear an amen? You are the beloved of God. You're the object of his intense affection. You are a citizen of heaven. You have been named the heir of Jesus Christ. You are an unceasing spiritual being with eternal destiny in God's great universe. But, but, but wait, there, there's more. When Jesus came, he said, if you want, if you want to do this, if you want, you can ask me, and I will come, and the Father and I will make our home in you. You don't have to, but he said, if you'll ask me, I and the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit will come, and we're going to make our home inside of you. Now, you don't have to do it, but if you do it, it's amazing, because what's going to happen is we're going to take up residency inside of your life. Residency. We understand this, that we're ragged. Oh, I get it. I'm ragged. I get it. You're ragged. There, there are really ugly corners in our lives. Here's what we have to know. That you and I are worth more than Mount Vernon because someone greater than George Washington calls me home. Someone greater than George Washington calls you home. If that is what you want and if that is what you desire, it, it goes deeper than that. There, there's a great problem uh, for our being loved, and that is deep down inside it. We talk about it where society doesn't think about it much. We know there's a lot about me, there's a lot about you that's not lovable, that cannot naturally be loved. And we live in a consumer age. We know this. It's about consuming more, 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 more. We also live in a therapeutic age. So we just want to talk about you're wonderful, let's do lunch, don't ever change. The Bible doesn't approach human worth in that same way. 
it's really frank about both our great worth and our great problem. The good news is God loves you more than you could ever imagine. The bad news is for you and I is our sin, our darkness, and our propensity to mess things up, our ego, our selfishness are way worse than we could ever imagine. I tell you this because I know. We become experts at not letting it enter into our minds. We forget so much of the dark stuff. Think about this. Think about that we're going to stand before a just, omniscient, holy, righteous, sinless, perfect God who cares deeply about every human being that I've hurt, used, resented, and envied. He will know every thought that I've ever thought, every word that I've ever spoken, every action I've ever engaged in, all the darkness, twistedness, pettiness, all the stuff, all the stuff that I've ever done. How are you and I going to stand before a God like that? Here's what is amazing. He says in this portion of Scripture, this is love. Not that we loved God. It's no surprise that we would love God, really, right? Because God has everything we want. He has beauty. He has wealth. God has gifts. God has goodness. God has life and so much more. There is a love that seeks value. This is love, a special kind of love. Not that we loved God. This is love, though. But that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, for our darkness. Do you know what the worth of a human being is? The only way to know that is to go to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where you find the real worth of every person on planet Earth. You have to go to the cross and you see what the worth of humanity is. And I want to let you know something. You can never exaggerate God's love ever. You can never over-exaggerate the love of God Ever. It's impossible because he loved us first, he loved us best, and he loves us forever. Isn't that a great thing? Amen. You can never exaggerate the love of God. You can't do it. You may think you can, but you can't do it. Now, John says, this love is available to you. If you never received it, you can do it now. Then this love, he says, this love, will change the world. See, it was this idea that human beings are worthy because they are made by God in his image and loved by God that changed the world and created the notion of the worth, the dignity, the equal human rights. That was not an idea that was common in the ancient world that came out of Israel through Jesus Christ. Now it is spread to the whole earth, including places where it doesn't clearly have a faith dimension or even a faith foundation. That's where that idea came from. Every human being is of equal worth. We hold this idea, this truth, to be self-evident that all human beings, all men are created equal. See, 
you look at this, Aristotle, Plato, Genghis Khan did not hold that truth to be self-evident. That came from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That when we look at this, the hate in the world, the hate that we see coming from those, and I don't know how large that group is in Charlottesville, but whatever it is, there is a voice that is speaking there that is only underneath the surface of the country that we live in that is at boiling points. That we see the hate that is there, that, that, that is in there, it is antithetical to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love that he has for us. If, if you have gone through these last couple of days and you have watched the news out of Charlottesville or in years past you've watched these things that have happened in our nation or in the world that is full of hate and full of white supremacy, if your blood has not boiled, you need to check your pulse and see if you are still living. You need to see whether you are a born again child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because the body of Christ can't just sit here and keep doing what we're doing. We have been rocked to sleep by our apathy. If your holy discontentment has not got the best of you, I want to encourage you before you leave this place that you would hit your knees and say, God, help me first. Help our country. Help our church. These things are, they're there, man. They, they, these things are just the boiling points of what's under the surface. We've known this. There is a hurting world out there. But if your blood has not boiled to the point of saying, when I see a Nazi flag being lifted in our country, in the very state of Virginia, there ought to be something inside of us that cries out with a holy discontentment. God, forgive us. Forgive us. We can't just walk out of church and it's business as usual. It is not business as usual. Hear me, church. I've said this so many times. You've got to begin to speak up. Don't be passive. This is not about violence at all, ever. This is about men and women of God looking at the word of the Lord and saying, wait a minute, that is not why Jesus died. That is wrong. And let me tell you something. Some will think, well, I gotta go out and be violent. Let me tell you something. That's not how it works. Love will conquer hate. If you don't believe me, look at the cross. It'll conquer it every time. Well, they look like they're getting the best of us. They're out there. No, 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 no. Remember, this, the kingdom is reversed from the world that we live in. It's reversed. Well, I'm gonna go out there and throw things and I'm gonna punch. No. We've had enough of that doesn't work church it's time to speak up in your home if your kids are old enough you should be talking to them about this let me tell you something if they've seen it on TV and heard it on the radio they're already thinking about it come on they're, they're clued into social media stuff it's all over social media 
And I'm not saying just because it's there, it's gospel truth. I'm just saying they're seeing stuff about this. We gotta address it. We gotta talk to them about it. We gotta talk to our coworkers about it. As God gives you entry into that, that you would let the love of God conquer this hate that we are seeing. We gotta start as the body of Christ, beginning to say church is just more than Sunday morning. We gotta come and grab a hold of each other's arms and hands. There's hurting people in this room today. There's people in this room that probably have a racist spirit, and we just need to come and ask God to forgive us. There, there are people that are here, maybe you're struggling with things, or people have done things against you, and the body of Christ has got to be broken in these days to realize that we're nothing without Jesus. We need him so desperately to heal our land. We, we need him to desperately heal, heal churches and, and the body of Christ, because we've got to win a world to the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and if we're filled with hate and racism, we can't reach him. Time is now. If you tolerate it, you will become it. John tells us, beloved, God's rack dolls. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He says it because it's so easy to come to church. Oh, yeah, I'm pro-love. I love God. But then when I come to a real-life human being, I look at the color of their skin or I look at what they drive or I look at what they do or they don't have. They didn't speak to me. They don't have enough money. They have this, that, that, all of that. He said, I want to tell you that this is more than this. God is saying, here's a person. Here's a person. Here is a person. How about your life? How about the people that are in your life, sir or ma'am? You know, there's somebody who God wants you to love. There's a coworker. There's there's a spouse. There's somebody in your neighborhood. There's somebody right here in this church before you leave this room today that you know you need to love on them. See, life is about love. Do you understand what makes a church great? It's not Abundant Life Church. What doesn't make us great is our programs, our lighting, our buildings. Our numbers, it's love. It's just love. So the body of Christ is here to help you take the next step. And in your seats were these cards. Would you grab hold of these cards? And would you hold them up? I just want to make sure you have them. And I want to, before you leave, would you just go ahead and put them in your Bible? You know what will help that? Our ushers come every week and clean up after you. And some of you are just filthy. I'm just telling you right now. Okay? Take this with you. We didn't print this to leave in the seat. Oh, Lord. It says it's simple. So what we're trying to do here is there's a lot of things that are going on. We're trying to do ministry out of our strategic pathway. We have a reason to do what we're doing. This, these things aren't on this card just to say, oh, they look good. Wow, look at us. Look at our website. I mean, we've got a lot of things going on. No, this is here to help us grow together and to grow one another. And so you see connect groups. You see they are the heart of Abundant Life Church. Why? Well, relationships got to be our heart. This is what this is about. If it's about love and you never connect, what are we? 
Everyone needs a connection with other Christ followers. You can look at the website. You can get on it. It's there. And that link is there. You can, you can go to that and find that. And I want to encourage you with our small groups. Kristen's leading the way on that. Our leaders are leading the way on this. That we've, we've talked to our small group leaders that are currently leaders and those that are coming in. What we've told them flat out, flat out. This is no mince and words. Listen, we're not interested in you, interested in you leading a group and saying us four and no more. No, no, no. We're not here to do that. There is a world to reach for the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just about you your group and those chairs, it's about multiplication because that is the New Testament church. That means groups are gonna grow and groups are going to multiply. What we've got many times is we get into a group, this is my group for life, it's always going to be this way and the world is going to hell. Jesus, help us. John says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and truth. More than just what sounds good and emotional to me. Let's get real about our